0: Few place names evoke a sense of mystique quite like Tasmania. Even if not everyone could place it on a map, the heart-shaped island hanging like a pendant from Australia's southern coast is practically a household name, yet it feels out of reach all the way down at the bottom of the world.
1: As you know, Eric, I've traveled quite a bit through Australia over the years, but I haven't made it to Tasmania. Your stories, though, have compelled me to add it to my list.
0: You definitely should. I went there on assignment for National Geographic Traveler at the end of 2019 and spent two weeks driving around the state, exploring its wild spaces, hiking its scenic shorelines, tasting the incredible wines being made there, and most significantly, learning about the tragic past of its indigenous Palawa people who were all but wiped out in the 19th and 20th centuries. Though little remains of their history, their descendants have found some truly innovative ways to keep their culture alive, including through tourism experiences like a multi-day hike that I went on during my time there.
1: That was Wukalina Walk. It sounded incredible, and I can't wait to talk to the founder. In this episode, we'll also learn about the conservation efforts being undertaken to save Tasmania's unique marsupials, including those famous devils, and how the island became one of the most exciting foodie destinations
0: in the world. Welcome to Conscious Traveler, We're your hosts, Eric and Catherine, and we're excited to dive into the world of meaningful, mind-opening travel with you. With our stories and interviews, we hope to make it easier for you to indulge your curiosity and seek out rare experiences wherever you go next.
1: On our Season 1 episode about navigating encounters with Indigenous communities, we talked about why it's important to seek out meaningful interactions with other cultures and how to do so sensitively. In it, Eric, you shared an experience that truly stood out during your time in Tasmania.
0: That's right. I went on a trek called Wukalina Walk that was created by elders of Tasmania's Palawa community. Over the course of four days, my fellow walkers and I learned about the history and culture of the indigenous peoples of Tasmania while exploring some of the iconic landscapes along the northeast coast's Bay of Fires. We dove for cockles and walked along deserted beaches where Palawa ancestors would have gathered for feasts. We cooked mutton bird over the campfire and even made traditional jewelry out of shells we had collected. It was truly an unforgettable experience for a number of reasons, not least of which was that it forged a connection between the Australia of today and that of the ancient past, while also providing meaningful employment for young Palawa members who are interested in tourism.
1: It sounds like it. To learn more, we're going to talk to Wookalina Walk founder, Clyde Mansell, about how Indigenous experiences can play an important role in guiding the Australian tourism industry to a more inclusive future.
0: So, Clyde, I got to experience Wookalina Walk at the end of 2019 in November. The weather was just sort of turning a little warmer, but it was still just beautiful and breezy, and I had four wonderful days on the northeast coast of Tasmania. I'm wondering, how did the idea for Wukalina Walk first occur to you, and how was it different from other tourism experiences in Tasmania up to that point?
2: When land was first returned to the Aboriginal community in 1995, we, that is the Land Council and the Aboriginal community, looked at ways that we could use land to extend our cultural interpretation, and in many cases recreate some of it. And the northeast, whilst it hasn't been returned, is central to our community and that is our cultural homeland. Our traditional people lived on that country thousands of years, undisturbed. It's my direct descendant, Manalagena, who set the pathway for us and our link to that area. Once we start to think about how we can tell our story, land became a central part of it and the community is always talking about its relationship to country. In the Aboriginal community, we need that connection to country to extend and express our culture in the community and out. So all those things drove the desire to you know to start the walk. In most other tourism ventures, people talk about walking on land and we see this more than just a walk. This is a journey for our participants who come on board for the four-day experience, and we say to them right at the beginning, we see this as an experience Mm -hmm. rather than just... That it
0: is, let me tell you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... To that end, who have you seen tends to come along on Wookalina Walk? Has it been more international travellers who are looking for a taste of Indigenous culture or is it Australians who want to learn more about the original people of Tasmania?
2: When we first started, there was a trickling of international clients and we were quite surprised that without doing a full-scale advertising campaign internationally, people were getting to hear about the walk. We're now seeing that everyday Tasmanians that are starting to do the walk and also So Hmm. like people from interstate, the closure of borders impacted on that. But we've just had a departure today, go out, and it's made up of uh, private colleges. If you look at it, it's a mixture.
0: Well, my experience last year was definitely a mixture. There were some Americans and Canadians and definitely a few Australians. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the Australians who were there was that they said, you know, we wanted to get a different version of the history than what we were taught in schools. Like history in Australia didn't start in the 18th century when the British arrived. It went back way longer. Personally, what I felt about the experience was that it was enriching on so many different levels, including learning about Indigenous history, but also the cultures, the traditions, and how it's being kept alive today, including through Wukalina Walk. What is it that you hope visitors walk away with after spending time with you and the other community members who participate though, Clyde?
2: Look, four days in telling a story about our community is just a blink of an eye. Yeah. But, you know, we hope that we install in people the desire to continue that journey because it's only a beginning, you know, and the things that we touch on will only give you that kind of introduction. in we'll, As far as, like you said, some of the Australians were saying they wanted a correct version of history in relation to the community <laughs> in that, you know, People were taught, particularly in Tasmania, that, hey, uh, Truganini was the last Tasmanian Aborigine. Well, you know, OK, if that's the case, why do they then have a reserve on Cape Barren Island restricting the movement of 300 people? Why are they restricted by conditions of reserve? Hey, you know, history will tell you, if you look at it right, that that is not, Truganini.
0: factor is not the reality of it. Right, it's not so cut and dried like that.
1: I was going to say, Clyde, that from what I've heard from Eric and know about the experience, the walk, it seems like part of what makes it so engaging is that it's not about sharing this Paloa culture, but also helping to ensure that it's continuing. I know that you employ people from the community and especially young people, and it seems like you're really impressing upon them how important it is that they are sort of the messengers of this knowledge.
2: The guides that we've got employed now are, are quite correctly say young Aboriginal people who have been given an opportunity to express their cultural knowledge and they look totally overwhelmed me. They would realise that they had a far greater knowledge of culture than what they thought but you know it's been to a level where it's really surprised me. It's, it's been brilliant. We're blessed that we seem to pick the right people because you know one of the female guides Carlita, Thomas.
0: My favourite. She took me diving for snails.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Carlina would hardly say boo to anyone. You know, she was very reserved and didn't have a lot of confidence. But we're working for the Rookerland Walk. That confidence has grown and she's now a lot stronger in her own cultural identity.
1: That's a very cool side effect, it sounds like. Could you talk a little bit about how you managed to balance out the high-end travel experience of this alongside being able to offer this meaningful employment to the people the young people of the Palawa community?
2: When I was looking at how we would go about developing the concept, I met people and talked to them about what do you look to achieve when you uh, go out and talk to the Aboriginal community. If we didn't have that uh, Palawa cultural expression we would be just another tourism venture, walk along the coast. But as you quite likely say, what we bring to the table, if you like, is an experience and and an introduction to the concepts of how our traditional people manage resources and the way we look at things differently, the environment and like bush tucker and all those things. and, And we view the ocean as a supermarket, you know, because you've got all those wonderful
0: products out That's there. A you big, know. rough supermarket. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it can be rough
2: sometimes. Yes, I agree. But try to bring all those things together and say, look, what you're getting here if you come along to the a Walk is a holistic interpretation. That's what I think makes us different from just another walking company.
0: You hit it on the head there, Clyde, which is the fact that like the landscape is so central to the experience, right? Quite literally, there's nowhere else like it. And those landscapes, those places are embedded in Palawa identity. Just walking down the beach to some of those ancient midden heaps where people would gather for millennia to um, eat, uh, socialize, you know, spend a season was just incredible and so central to the experience as well.
2: Yeah, and we not only had to incorporate that into the interpretation, but we had to incorporate it into the design, if you like, of the campsite, Krakani Lumi, which is Palawakani for place to rest but we talked about the environment we wanted to develop at Krakani Lumi as near to what the old people had when they they camped on country but we've got to realize that we're now in the 21st century and (laughs) we've got to be careful you just can't leave things open because you know they probably wouldn't last very long the animals would get if anything so we had to design something that when it's not being used it neatly folds away and becomes a lockable container if you like but when we open it up then you've got the design of the domes shape structure of our people and when I spoke to the architects and we talked about how we were going to what design we were looking for I said to them I wanted likened to when you maybe go to the theatre and you're sitting there and the curtains are drawn and you, you're anxious about what's going to happen when the curtains open. And they took that brief and, and came up with the design that the doors slide open and what you've got is that big communal dome where the group spends a lot of its time when it's not walking. And it's just a liken to that of opening the, the curtains in a theatre. <laughs>
1: I can see that just from the photos. The domed timber structures really look quite chic and, you know, there are small cabins and the larger gathering space that you were talking about with the fire area and dining room and the shared bathrooms. How much did you take inspiration or direct influence from traditional Palawa dwellings and the way that they kind of meld into the landscape? Was this difficult to do
2: or...? That's a story in its own right. We've got a program here in Tasmania where Aboriginal community members can go and do ranger training. With parks, and we had some trine ranges, Aboriginal trine ranges. It was about seven. Anyway, um, we decided that we try and incorporate them into getting things set up and that. And we, I took them up to the site or just over the river, and I proceeded to give them this two-page brief about what we wanted, you know. And we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll have a look around and see what site we could come up with. And we anticipated that uh, it would take us at least a day, but <laughs> within ten minutes, they were like, hey, we've found the spot and when you, in, you could see straight away that that's where the campsite should be again we used our knowledge of traditional culture when the old fellas camped things that they looked for was fresh water and protection and closeness to the sea especially up the northeast and that's what we've got in this site the other thing that we wanted to achieve was we want to be able to say well We've got our structures on country, on land, but if we decide that we're not going to do the walk anymore, we can just get a helicopter and pick those uh, huts and, and uh, uh, cabins up and remove them. Just within season, you won't know that they were there. Now, we wanted to do that because that's the way our old fathers did it, but also we wanted to show the different imprints between the country on the environment between non-Aboriginal structures and Aboriginal structures.
1: Right, Quite and, a contrast, I
2: guess. And if you... Think Think about Krakani Lumi and then look at the imprint on the country that they've made at Larapuna with the lighthouse
0: building. The lighthouse that you stay at your last night, that's right.
2: Completely different outcomes. It destroys the land.
0: Intrusive, Um, yeah.
2: They mined the granite and then put two foot by two foot blocks of granite to build the houses. Well, did you really need to do it that way?
0: They also cleared that land and it's one of the windiest spots in Australia, if you ask me. Not sheltered at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Clyde, you know, I've traveled quite a lot in Australia, and so has Catherine, and we both have found that Indigenous-led, Indigenous-operated, and Indigenous-focused tourism activities, while, you know, they're popping up here and there, are still few and far between in a lot of the country, and not just in Tasmania. Have you seen that changing lately? And if so, you know, where do you see it going from here and how do you see Indigenous-led tourism enterprises like Wukalina Walk evolving and changing the tourism model in Australia?
2: I believe that one little adventure like the Wukalina Walk has already started to have some impact on that. For sure. And, um, look, we're, we're the only... Palawar-owned and, and operated venture in Australia. And you've got other Aboriginal ventures, but most of the time, the non-Aboriginal people own them and Aboriginal people work in them. Whereas mm-hmm. in our walk, it's different. Right. So, but, and I can definitely see that within a decade, I reckon if people realise that the Wookalena walk is operating successful, you'll see more and more ventures of that nature coming up. And I know that there's a couple of community organizations in Tasmania looking at a, a similar approach, but in a different area. You know, say one, we're going to walk down the northeast and we had another venture similar to that on the west coast, and down the down southwest. Mm-hmm.
1: What a wonderful outcome. Yeah, if you could kind of expand it to other groups and yeah. other parts of the country. Yes mainland yeah, too yeah, yeah. it sounds like there would be a lot of
0: value added uh, well I, I believe so I believe so too especially having met you and the other people involved I really want you to give my love to Carlita and Ben and Hank and Auntie Sharon thank, oh, thank you, you th- so much Clyde yeah thank, thank, you. Really really line, Clyde. thank you all right Catherine any guesses on what this is
1: <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Some kind of possessed zombie ghost
0: raised from (laughs) the dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a baby Tasmanian devil being picked up from a log in which she was taking a nap. So she wasn't happy. (laughs) (laughs) That was a baby. Yes. Can you imagine what the full grown adults (laughs) sound like? I actually saw the Tasmanian devils up close one evening at Devils at Cradle near Cradle Mountain, Lake St. Clair National Park. Wade Anthony founded this conservation center to aid in efforts to save the Tasmanian devils who are facing an existential threat due to a contagious face cancer that afflicts them. Devils at Cradle also protects spotted and eastern quolls, the latter of which are only found in Tasmania. The center educates the public about the tremendous threats facing these animals due to human development in their natural habitats, as well as introduced species and predators.
1: To learn more about these extraordinary and underappreciated animals, and the critical efforts currently underway to ensure their survival, we decided to speak with Wade.
0: So, Wade, just for some background, how and why did you start Devils at Cradle? And why was your focus on carnivorous marsupials in particular?
3: Well, I guess growing up in the remote island of Tassie, I spent much of my childhood with my father outdoors, exploring and camping in the bush and um, I developed a fascination with this mysterious creature. We would often hear it outside the tent of a knight going through our belongings and squabbling with other devils. And as a young boy, that was quite a, a scary moment and it's um, firmly imprinted in my mind and the fascination sort of developed from there.
0: Those cries are certainly terrifying. I played Catherine (laughs) on a soundtrack from Devils at Cradle and it was just a baby and it was still blood-curdling almost. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And that's actually how they got the name. Um, I guess... The early settlers would have heard these animals in a, in a similar fashion um, before they actually sighted it. So it sounds, sounds much bigger and scarier than it actually is. And that's exactly how they've got their name.
1: Interesting. So what would you say are some of the unique challenges that are facing Tasmanian wildlife these days? Eric had told me about a contagious face cancer that the devils are quite prone to. Does that make the conservation mission feel even more urgent?
3: Well, it's probably the primary challenge for the Tasmanian devil, and it has been for the last, well, 15 to 20 years, probably more so in the last 10. But it's a contagious facial cancer that's swept through the island and decimated the the wild population of devils by up to about 80%. So that was the main reason behind setting up the Sanctuary Devils at Cradle, to try and assist how we could. We have a fairly unique property on the edge of the World Heritage Area at the Mountain National Park. So it was an ideal location to be able to do something and it's in a really popular tourism destination. So I could see how we could combine those two things, tourism and conservation, and really provide a In a significant conservation sort of effort towards the Tasmanian devil. So that's one of their great challenges. I guess the positive thing at the moment is we've started to see devil facial tumour disease, the remaining wild devil population stabilise. We've started to see some signs of recovery in the wild. And interestingly, a lot of research which is going on in the field has started to see signs of tumour regression. So an animal they might have trapped six months ago with a fairly advanced tumour, they've trapped it six months later and the tumour disappeared.
0: Oh, wow. It's a bit of good news.
3: Yeah, yeah, really, really good news. So in effect, it looks like they're starting to save themselves, so to speak. So this is fantastic news.
1: And then Wade, what other pressures are they and the quolls facing and how are you dealing with that at the sanctuary?
3: I guess probably the two other primary risks for these guys are um, habitat removal. That still exists on a fairly large scale throughout Tasmania. There's a quite a significant forestry practice that occurs in Tasmania, so, um, you know, habitat's being removed all the time. With an increasing number of tourists to the islands becoming quite a popular tourism destination, roadkill is the other issue that they face. So all of these animals, Tasmanian devil, spotted tail quoll, eastern quoll, Often find their food along the side of the road. There's a lot of roadkill in Tasmania of different herbivores, paddy melon. Bennett's Wallaby tail Possum and its primary food source for these animals. So they're often following the edge of the road looking for food and unfortunately they get collected by vehicles as well. So these are significant factors affecting their survival in the wild and makes them quite vulnerable.
0: Oh wow it's true if there's roadkill on the side of the road they're scavengers so of course they'll sort of be drawn to whatever's there and people are speeding by and don't see them especially because nocturnal and it's an issue. Are there other pressures that the animals are facing or that you you have to contend with that they're also dealing with in the mainland because quolls exist in mainland Australia too. Are they facing similar pressures there?
3: Well, yes, I guess in relation to roadkill, they are. So spotted tail quolls still exist up the eastern seaboard of mainland Australia, but in very small numbers, the populations are quite fragmented due to human development. But I know for a fact that roadkill is a major issue for you know for these remaining populations there. I guess you know in in more recent years, climate change and what we're seeing the effects that that's having on various species, bushfires, flooding events, right. these sorts of things. We don't see it quite as extreme down in Tasmania, but we certainly do from time to time. So a few years ago, we had some significant bushfires spread through Tasmania, and this would have undoubtedly impacted on not only habitat, but taken, you know, high mortality as well for both devils and both quoll species.
1: What would you say are the hurdles to reintroducing devils and quolls to wild areas of Tasmania? And does the education you do at Devils at Cradle help with
3: that? Well, there's been a national insurance population established by the Tasmanian government and we form part of that program as a a key breeding facility on our site at Cradle Mountain.
0: So it's like a living insurance policy to guarantee that the species survives? That's incredible.
3: Yeah and it's been really really important. I I believe there's around 700 devils now in captivity across Australia and and internationally as well. We've got some ambassador animals internationally but this insurance population is based on maintaining genetic diversity. So we're moving animals around the country to try and get the best pairings for genetic outcomes. And this means that you've got the most robust animals to put back into the wild. So we're educating all of our visitors were explaining exactly how this works and what we're trying to achieve but there are some challenges when you combine tourism with conservation and you're trying to prepare animals for release back into the wild there are some challenges that go with that so at our site we've got a number of different enclosures, and some of these are high display enclosures that we use for the visiting public.
0: Right, such as the ones that I saw with feeding time and stuff like that, where you can see the animals and their behaviour quite clearly.
3: Yeah, so that's the educational aspect of it. So we've got a certain number of animals we use in those spaces, and we've also got some much larger enclosures that are off display in a very natural environment. So we use these areas to precondition you know, captive-born young. Most of the animals that do go back into the wild or reintroduce back into the wild are typically juveniles to sub-adults, so they haven't spent too much time in captivity. And the time that right. they have, we've prepared them for that life ahead. So we take away the human contact effectively.
0: Ah, interesting, and get them ready to re-enter normal devil life. So, Wade, before I visited Devils at Cradle, the only... <laughs> thing I knew about Tasmanian devils really, I mean, I read up on them before I came to the facility, but before coming to Tasmania, I thought of Tasmanian devils sort of like, you know, the Looney Tunes version like a whirling dervish of, of destructive energy, but what is your take on it? Does the cartoon or you know, our sort of funny images of the devils does it help raise awareness or is it a disservice to the animals? Good
3: question, but I think it's not a disservice at all. I think it's raise awareness globally for this species which in today's world, when they're in a bit of trouble, I think it's um, it's really beneficial. Whilst it's not an accurate version of the animal, right. <laughs> it's certainly raised awareness. So the fact that it's called a devil and it has all these amazing different antics has um, created a, a really strong point of interest. So most people that come to Tasmania want to be able to see a Tasmanian devil. And that's uh, particularly hard to do in the wild, being such a, a shy creature. When people come to our facility, our keepers are answering a lot of really random questions in a lot of cases, but also trying to dispel a number of these myths and give them a really accurate understanding of life cycle behavior and their important role they play in in the ecology. Uh, So we're often hearing things that they're much smaller, much cuter. Not yes. the savage beast. Until they
0: start snarling, then they're frightening.
3: <laughs> yeah. We, we go into things like their reproduction cycle, and you know, the gestation is 21 days. They, they're th- super fetal, so they give... Birth to up to twenty to forty babies, and they only raise four within a pouch. So these things are, um, you know, fascinating for visitors. Their lifespan is only five years, and they have a highly, highly competitive life. And as I mentioned before, their name—once they hear this animal, then they can they understand why it's called the devil.
0: At context. <laughs> It sounds
1: like they have an intense life in a lot of ways. What are the upsides and downsides to caring for these animals in captivity as far as the human contact they have? Do you feel like there are ways that that contact with humans is a positive thing? Or conversely, is there a way that you try to sort of protect them from interactions with visitors to make sure that there's no harm being done to the animals?
3: good question. I think we have to try and balance a little bit of both. A conservation facility that's supported by tourism and we don't have any other avenue for financial support. So we've got to balance that and it's a fairly delicate balance for us. So we do have animals that are on high display, similar to a zoo type environment, if you like, where we're still trying to maintain as much wild environment for them as we can. There is that human contact. But we see this this is a unique opportunity to be able to educate these people. I think in today's world education is a large part of conservation. So there's a percentage, let's say 50% of our animals engage with people on a daily basis, whereby the other 50% we have in enclosures that are um, much larger, they're off display, so they can go about their business as a devil would. And and we see a significant difference in their behaviour, to be honest. Typically, devils are quite a shy, primarily nocturnal animal. So in in a lot of these display enclosures, we see that more wild behaviour. But it's interesting, I think, historically, if you look back, Tasmanian devils have always been associated with people, and I'm talking about indigenous Australians. A devil as a scavenging animal would have followed you know, indigenous tribes around, and I'm sure there would have been interaction there whereby they would have moved into camp in the evening and would have been fossicking around for scraps. And we still see that today. As I mentioned, as a young boy growing up and camping in the bush, this, this was happening, but I think this has been happening for a long, long time. They're an animal that adapts very well to captivity as I mentioned they're a shy animal but they adapt very well to human contact and we we've seen a lot of situations where animals that have been hand reared bond very very closely to humans so there's a very interesting historical bond there I think or or some sort of connection anyway.
0: It's super interesting I mean one of my images I have a picture of you Wade with a spotted quail nuzzling up the hood of your hoodie because it was a chilly evening while we were there and it was just sort of like it had been on your shoulder for a moment and then it crawled into your, basically your pouch (laughs) to keep a little warm. That was really striking to me because obviously you do take such care to educate guests about these animals in the wild and why it's important to protect them. And what we can do, like just driving slower at night, for instance, makes a big difference to protect them. But it was really fascinating to see that bond and to feel your bond in the other direction to these animals, you know, and doing the work that you have been all these years so it really was a pleasure to visit, and I came away knowing a lot more about Tasmania's carnivorous marsupials than I did going in. So thank you very much. Well,
3: you're welcome. Excellent.
0: And hopefully we'll get to uh get back down to Tasmania and see you soon and see how the devils are doing.
3: We'd love uh, to have you along anytime. Thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you and um Yeah, look, long live the devil.
0: Long live, long live the, the devil. devil. <laughs> thank you, Wade. Thanks, thanks,
1: thanks, Wildlife is one great reason to visit Tasmania. But almost under the radar, the island has become one of the top food destinations not just in Australia but in the whole world.
0: I think a lot of people have tried Tasmanian wines like the light-bodied Pinot Noirs and tart champagne-like sparkling wines that have been winning awards lately but artisanal producers are also making everything from rare honeys and cheeses to chocolate and then there's all that fresh seafood including oysters and scallops that you can find in top-rated restaurants all over the world. Personally I could spend months just eating my way around the island.
1: That sounds like heaven. To learn more about what's behind this edible renaissance we turn to one of the best-known proponents of Tasmania's Urgenting food Scene, Rodney Dunn.
0: Rodney was a former chef and food writer who, along with his wife, Severine, moved to Tasmania in 2007 and started a farm and cooking school called the Agrarian Kitchen. Then, in 2017, they opened the Agrarian Kitchen Eatery, a restaurant housed in a former 19th century insane asylum, no joke, in the little hamlet of Norfolk, about a half hour drive outside of Hobart. I'll never forget my lunch there. I must have devoured half the menu, including house made burrata with pea tendrils, lemon, and foraged mint and wood-grilled lamb chops with sweet purple tropea onion and vinaigrette. It was my first afternoon in Tasmania, and it really set the scene for the rest of my trip. So, Rodney, you live in Tasmania now and have for over a decade. How did you and your wife Severine decide to pick up everything and move there back in 2007?
4: Look, I usually put it down to watching way too much River Cottage and reading way too many of Alice Waters' cookbooks and just really having the desire to get back to the country where I was from originally, um, not from Tasmania, but just to get back, I guess, to my roots. And it was never something that figured in my future. I never felt like the country was something I ever wanted to move back to after having gotten away to the bright lights of Sydney. But um, yeah, there was just something calling, I guess.
0: You grew up in rural New South Wales, is that right? So that's pretty different from Tasmania.
4: Absolutely. Very different. Very hot, dry and flat Uh, So, you know, the beautiful hills and the green nature of Tasmania is is a far cry from that.
1: So did you go there with the sort of fully formed idea or intent to create the farm-based hands-on cooking school that you ultimately did, or was that something that evolved over time?
4: We did come here with that idea in mind, and it was simply a way, I guess, selfishly for me to indulge my desire to be close to the source of food and have my own garden and have animals and you know it was a way I guess to include other people in that one of the things that I think is incredibly important with food is that it's shared often when you're dining by yourself somewhere amazing or you have an amazing food experience by yourself or an experience in general it's just never quite the same as if you've got someone that's shared in it and you can you can discuss it with them and uh, I guess revel in it together
0: Uh, Such a good point. As we've talked about on another episode uh, regarding food tours and cooking classes, food can be such a way into a culture as well as a destination, especially that sharing aspect with other people. I read somewhere that you you decided to develop the agrarian kitchen, the farm, as a kind of closed loop system to try to recreate pre-industrial agriculture why why did you do that? Why was it important? And then I guess as a follow-up, was Tasmania particularly suited to it?
4: Yeah, the closed loop system is something that really appeals to me and I think I'm that sort of person. I like things in boxes. I really like to have things in neat little packages, I guess. And you know, naturally if we look at the natural world it is that system whereby leaves fall from a tree and break down and give nutrition back up and the cycle continues again. Animals eat grass, the manure that they create then nourishes the grass to grow again so you know rather than fighting against nature I think it's just so incredibly important that we work with what we've got we're trying to work within a system we're not greater than that system so for me it was important in order to get the best out of our growing and our produce is to work in that system so that closed loop I think just works beautifully I hate waste personally. So, you know, when restaurants and kitchens can be incredibly wasteful if we were just to throw everything in a bin and that to go into landfill. So I think it's really, really important that that is somehow used and you need nutrition to grow things anyway. So, you know, I think it's just a natural progression for any, any gardener, any farmer to want to use what they can in order to create the best possible product they can.
1: I think that philosophy is gaining more steam in the States as well you know, here in California, there are quite a few farms who are, who are practicing all of these sort of methods. And it just, once you realize the sort of science behind it too, and what it does for the environment, it's like, how could you not?
4: Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because certainly the US and, and California, more specifically here in Australia, a lot of generative farming, we look to that part of the world. So, you know, whilst we would see the US as certainly having kind of the worst of fast food and industrialized food, there's also this amazing culture of of some of the best and the most exciting and forward thinking things that are happening in the world there. Mm
1: -hmm. So in your quest to do this, were there particular crops that you knew you needed to plant in order to make it work or like things that Tasmania maybe was already well known for? How experimental did you get? Any kind of indigenous foods you were planting?
4: Yes, well, in terms of the experimental side of it, I think that's something that's important to always continue to push boundaries of. So I guess we've probably got less experimental as the stakes have been raised. So, you know, when we just had the cooking school, we had the garden and, and, you know, we could afford things not to work and we still had things we could use. Now with the restaurant and trying to be very diligent about always having product to supply the restaurant, then, you know, it's probably down to maybe 10 15% experiment and, you know, 85 to 90% of things we know are going to work and are going to be good. And that's just making sure that our risk is minimal. But, you know, it's important not to just rest on your laurels and just do the same thing over and over again. And for us, we knew what worked in terms. Tasmania and there's plenty of gardeners and people out there that will tell you, oh no, you grow this at this time of year and you can't do this and you can't do that. So it's important that we follow those rules, but also just see what else we might be able to do. And, you know, I think if the plant's happy and healthy and given a good season, you can certainly achieve things above and beyond what people um, ever expect to achieve in, in growing different things.
1: Could you give us maybe a few examples of some of the kind of things you're growing or maybe fun discoveries along the way that, you know, was something you maybe didn't know was going to be successful, but now is like a staple in your kitchen?
4: Uh, sure. I think probably the most interesting thing for me was just the simple things, the things that i never expected. Simple things like root vegetables. So you know, we all know carrots and parsnips and turnips and people generally think they're pretty boring. But when they're grown in really good soil, grown organically, grown to produce lots of sugars and grown at the right time of the year, they are some of the most exciting and amazing things. And I think expectations in life can sometimes be killers. So when you've got a carrot on your plate and you sit down and you don't expect it to be amazing and it's so incredibly sweet, it's almost like eating fruit, then I think that's what you know really blew my mind. Of course, there's the things like tomatoes which everybody loves and we would certainly focus at this time of the year on those type of things and be growing as many varieties. I think we've trialled probably about 300 different varieties and we continually keep the ones that are great, that we think are great and that grow well for us. There's a particular variety of pea that I got from a neighbour that she got from somebody else in the valley so you know it's been going for maybe the last 60 or so years that I know I can trace its records and it's called a Lacy Lady and it is absolutely superb.
0: It sounds mouthwatering just based on the name alone.
4: <laughs> we took a BRICS measurement and it was above the top of the chart. So I think the top of the chart was like 14 and it might have read 15 just to give you an indication of you know its sweetness. And, you know, that's something that we're doing as a measurement of, of how healthy these plants are taking um, sugar readings because the health of the plant increases its sugar and in turn then that sugar reading helps to prevent insect attack because insects can't digest sugar. I
0: think that story is an interesting example too of the amount of work and research you've put into it and tracing the history even of the plants that you're using and it's something that carries through both at the agrarian kitchen, the cooking school and farm which I believe you're relocating to the agrarian kitchen eatery the farm if I might say so I believe Was in a former 19th century schoolhouse in Lachlan, the Agrarian Kitchen Eatery, which is the restaurant. You opened in 2017 in a former mental asylum called Willow Court in the town of New Norfolk and the restaurant itself was in the dining room of the old woman's ward so I was wondering if you could talk about what it was like reinvigorating these historical sites instead of just building all new and to you know your customized order and why that was important to you in terms of having a sense of place at your cooking school and restaurant.
4: For me I've always loved history and to have what I consider a really special opportunity to be part of the history of these buildings is amazing. So initially, when we looked in Tasmania to create the cooking school, we looked at land and we thought we'd build. But on coming to Tasmania and spending some time here, we realised that Tasmania has, I think, half of all of Australia's Georgian buildings and certainly a whole swathe of Victorian buildings, Victorian era, I should say. These buildings quite often were just left and abandoned, and people don't really place the value on them that they deserve. So when you look at these buildings, and I look, if I refer to the cooking school building, it was certainly uh, not derelict. It, people had lived in it, but it just has the most amazing features and has made and, and continues to make up until you know soon when we move, the most amazing cooking school with incredibly high Ceilings, beautiful big windows, and, you know, there's a real sense of calm, I find, in these buildings, and I think the proportions are beautiful. And it was at a time when I think we created beautiful spaces generally because we thought about those things in buildings, and I think we do now with modern buildings, but maybe, you know, I guess pricing comes into it a little bit more. So we're incredibly lucky to be custodians of these buildings and to be part of, of their history is really Special.
0: I can attest to the beauty of the eatery too. I just remember looking up at that pressed metal ceiling and then at the space that you've created as an open kitchen at the far end of the, you know, former refectory, I guess you could call it. And then also about all that outdoor space, which I imagine you're going to start farming a bit more intensively and stuff now and thinking to myself... This gives me such a glimpse into the people who lived here in the past. And yet here I am on a gorgeous sunny day. It was my first stop in Australia eating what seemed like basically the entire menu of lunch that day, including a delicious potato, one of those tubers that had sort of been transformed remarkably. But again, starting my journey off with a sense of history that I could literally taste set the tone for my entire trip to Tasmania.
4: Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. And certainly food and flavor and flavor. And memories are incredibly powerful, and you know to have that immediately, your mind comes back to this place. So, you know, I feel that's exactly what we're setting out to try and do.
1: And I know, and we had talked previously about the fact that you are out of the city; you're not right in Hobart, and that that adds to the appeal of it. I think for people, especially travelers, but also people who are just locals, I would imagine. I know for myself, when I'm traveling and when I've had to kind of go seek out something beyond the the kind of environment that I'm staying in, it's led to many more memorable meals, especially when I've gone out to a farm or hopped in a taxi and I'm like, let's try to find this place. I don't really know where it is. And you kind of go on an adventure and that I think adds to the experience.
4: I I totally agree. and you, You know, our discussions previous to this and I've thought about this even more beyond that. And I think what the time of the journey does is it builds anticipation. So whilst the journey people sort of sitting there and thinking about the meal to come. I also think it's important to be in the place and in the surrounds that create an atmosphere that's amenable to what you're about to do as well, which is to eat Local food for us. So I really actually like the fact people say, Oh, you're a bit out of the city. How do you cope? But it's destinational dining, as we call it. So it's really important that there is that journey beforehand, in my opinion.
0: I think that's so well put by both of you, actually, is that first of all, it's not that far out of the city, especially for two LA drivers like Catherine and me. I stepped off the airplane into my rental car and drove to the restaurant, and that provided me with just the right break in my mindset from traveling hectic schedules on the road up in the air. And I just had to sit in the sunshine, breathe and then enjoy a meal. And it sort of provided that mental break to let me know I had arrived somewhere new.
4: Yes, of course.
1: So I know since you opened the Agrarian Kitchen, Tasmania has become really a renowned foodie destination. What sort of forces have you seen at play in creating this kind of mystique around Tasmania and the food scene there. And do you feel like you've been part of that renaissance?
4: Yeah, look, I'd really love to think that we've been part of that renaissance. The bones of it were always here, which was what drew us to Tasmania to start with. There was people growing beautiful produce. It's a beautiful place, as Eric well knows. So it was just ripe Pardon the pun for people to come and to tap into the agricultural resources that were here. So, you know, we've seen other restaurants spring up. You know, what I really love to see is there's this small group of growers that restaurants use and they will advertise their produce, you know, when they promote their dishes on Instagram or whatever it might be. So it really is working hand in hand with some lovely small farmers to create something really special. Is
0: that part of what you see happening next, even closer cooperation between farmers and restaurants like yours? Are there other directions that you see Tasmania's food scene going from here?
4: I'd like to think that the food scene from here just gets stronger and stronger. And I think there still is a lot of opportunity for small farmers and we're seeing younger farmers, which is really important because I know that's a problem worldwide, with farmers uh, generally just getting older, not the people taking up the industry, joining the industry that will take it forward. So I'd like to think that the conditions here are ready for younger farmers to really take the baton and run with it. And then off the back of that, it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. So restaurants that support that and, and promote that, you know, that's how we get people to come to the island and eat our food is that it's something different. It's something special. It's something of this place that they can't have wherever they live.
1: So on that note, because I have not been there and I haven't gotten to eat your food yet, can you tell me what is your current favorite dish? What is something that I could come and eat there right now that I would and find elsewhere?
4: Well, I'm an absolute sweet tooth, Catherine. You probably don't know that about me, but I love desserts. And just this weekend, just gone on our menu, we've had two of two of my favorites. One of them is a parfait. So it's a frozen dish flavored with chamomile from our garden. It's honey and chamomile. So it's a local honey from my friend, Laurie, who's just on the other side of the valley and the chamomile flavoring that. And then that's served with crushed berries from our brambles. So there's, you know, things like Logan berries and boysenberries berries and stuff crushed up and piled up on top of it. And that's absolutely beautiful. And then we always do two desserts. So the other one is fried brioche donuts, I guess, for want of a better word. And they're served with some cherries from a Croatian guy who just lives literally 200 meters from the restaurant. And he's got probably five or six acres with lots of fruit trees so he delivers the cherries and we've cooked them down and we serve the cherries and a scoop of cultured cream with that so
1: Those both sound divine. I have such a sweet tooth. I'm pregnant right now, and all I want is sweets, so you're really speaking my language. Well, I'll
0: email you a picture of the dessert that I got to enjoy last year, Catherine, which was a sponge Swiss roll with this delicious custard and satsuma plum, so I still Mm. think about that, Rodney. (laughs) Well, Rodney, I can't wait till we can make another lunch reservation and try the new prefix menus that you've got over there, and even better, perhaps take a cooking class in the new facility. Thanks so much for your time today,
4: though, and Uh, best of luck as you move forward that would be wonderful and thank you and we welcome you both with open arms
1: I'm ready to make a lunch reservation. I can't wait to get to Tasmania. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of what makes it so special.
0: Indeed, we haven't even gotten to the winemaking scene, let alone the newfound popularity of mountain biking that's revived moribund former coal mining towns. But then again, any destination worth visiting leaves you wanting more.
1: Absolutely. And any good podcast, too. For more information on the organizations and people featured in this episode, visit ConsciousTravelerPod.com and follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter who composed the music you heard in this episode.